Crystal Gale has um, a new album entitled These Days, in which she makes the uh, comment that in these days there are too many lovers and uh, not enough love. And I think that's a very accurate analysis of our times. Jesus said it would be that way. He said, in effect, because of the presence of many lovers, the love of many will grow cold. And uh, we can certainly say that that's true today. But it's always been true for some people in history. And this was certainly true of the man whose life we want to observe this morning. It's Samson, and his story is told in the 13th chapter of Judges. So we'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to, uh, to that chapter. It might be a little embarrassing to ask how many of you have read the book of Judges lately. I asked the uh, Wednesday morning men's class, and I got a number of blank stares. And uh, that's unfortunate, because Judges is a, is a great book, an exciting book. It's a book about swashbuckling heroes and heroines of mighty deeds, deeds of dash and, and daring do. And uh, it's just full of the stories of great uh, heroes. And we need heroes today. There are very few people today that we can emulate. Most of our heroes are sports figures, unfortunately. And we need uh, men and women, great men and women, that will stir us to uh, great to great deeds. And Judges is a book, a great book of heroes and heroines. It's unfortunate, in a way, that the book is entitled Judges, because uh, that somewhat misrepresents the case. When we think of judges, we think of uh, people in white uh, wigs and black robes, of judicial figures, judges, magistrates, people in the legal profession. But uh, the Hebrew term that's translated judges in our Bible, shofetim, actually means champions of justice, people who looked after the needs of the poor and oppressed. And uh, they're people that God raised up at critical times in Israel's history to, uh, to be saviors, deliverers of his people. The book of Judges takes place in a in a crucial period in Israel's history. It was a time when they had no king. That was the real state of affairs, and that's the underlying theme of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, and twice we're told, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no one, there was no central leadership, spiritual or political leadership, no one to pull the people together, to call them to arms, to galvanize them to action to remind them of God's uh, actions in the past and his promises in the future. And uh, during this very difficult time, God raised up charismatic leaders, charismatic in the original sense of men and women endowed with grace to bring about salvation. And that's what the book of Judges is, uh, is all about. There's a good summary of the, of the book in chapter 2. If you'd like to turn back to that chapter, in verse 11, the author writes, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Then they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked, provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Astartes, that is, the symbols of Astarte, the consort of Baal, mistress of Baal. And the angel, angel of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that, that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. And that's the story of the nation of Israel from the time of Samuel right on down to the time of uh, David. Now our story this morning is in chapters 13 through 16. And... uh, As I said, it's the story of Samson. The introduction is given in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. So at the outset we're given the uh, name of Israel's antagonist during this this particular period in their history as the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are very interesting people, and I give you a bit of uh, history here, not just to teach history, but uh, to let you know something of what Israel had to contend with during this time in their uh, their, uh, national life. The Philistines were not native to Canaan. They immigrated from uh, Crete, probably, Kaftor, as the Old Testament puts it, and originally from the... uh, from the area, land of the uh, Mycenaeans. If you've read uh, uh, any of Irving Stone's uh, material, you may have read The Greek Treasure, which is the story of, uh, of the Schliemann's uh, excavations at Mycenae and the incredible treasure that he unearthed there. The uh, Philistines were probably Mycenaean originally. They were associated with the Greeks. They fought with the Greeks in the Trojan War as mercenaries. They were a very cultured, sophisticated people. It's odd that today a Philistine is a term that we use for someone who's uncultured. But uh, in those days, the Philistines were uh, quite sophisticated people, warmongering, aggressive people who had uh, arms technology that the Israelites didn't have. They had an iron-working monopoly, and they were able to control the uh, possession of iron weapons in Canaan. Sometime, uh, oh, a couple of hundred years before this story in Judges 13, they, uh, they left uh, Crete and uh, tried to settle in Egypt. They were driven out of Egypt and eventually settled in the southwest corner of the land of Palestine along the coast. If you want to look at your map, you'll see the area that the, uh, where the Philistines lived. They made a historic impact upon the land. The, the, the word Palestine actually comes from the term Philistine. So this is what Israel had to contend with at this uh, particular time. And then in verse 2, we're told something of Samson's family. There was a certain man of Zorah. That's uh, the name of the village from which he came, and you'll see that, uh, that location on your map. Of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. So we're told that his father's name was Manoah, and uh, he was of the tribe of Dan. 
the main body of Danites had abandoned this part of the, the land. They left their possession and moved way up north and settled and left behind only a few scattered remnants of this tribe. We're told a bit later on in the story, in verse 25, that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir Samson in Mahanadan. The uh, word Mahana means camp, and uh, that's probably a reference to a, a displaced person's camp or a refugee camp where Samson and his family lived. That's where he grew up. So he was very early uh, acquainted with the Philistines and some of the atrocities that they uh, had directed toward his people. And we're told that his mother was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children. You shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor any, or, nor any, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. We're told in uh, these two verses something of his vocation and his destiny. His vocation was to be a Nazarite. And we know from number six that the Nazarites were a special body of people, uh, a kind of... uh, spiritual uh, knight uh, errant. They, uh, there were three conditions that bound them. One, they would not touch grapes or any of the products of grapes. That is, they couldn't eat uh, fresh grapes. Uh, even grape seeds were prohibited to them. They uh, couldn't eat raisins. They couldn't drink wine or beer. All of these uh, products of the grape were prohibited to them. The reason being, most people are agreed, that this was a sign of their separation from the easy and settled life in Canaan where grapes abounded. The second characteristic was that they were not to touch a dead body. A dead body was a symbol of defilement, and so their, uh, their separation from anything dead, any carcass of a dead animal or a, or a person, was a symbol of their separation from anything that defiled and especially the defilements of the flesh. The third characteristic of a Nazarite was that he did not cut or trim his hair. He grew his hair long and they grew beards. The reason, again, being that long hair in the ancient world was a symbol of undiminished strength. All over the ancient world, when men went to war, they they grew their hair long. There's a reference uh, in Judges 5 to those champions who let their hair hang loose. The, hock, the locks hung loose in Israel, Deborah says. It's a, uh, it symbolized uh, men going into war who let their hair grow. Uh, it's interesting that uh, the Greeks had a group of chariot warriors that they called hippies who, who uh, wore their hair long. The term has nothing to do with our modern term, hippies. It's, it's based on the Greek word for horse, but uh, they were called hippies. And there were a group of Canaanite uh, charioteers who wore their hair all the way down their back, and they were called Mariana warriors. So uh, the, the long hair to a Nazarite was a symbol of strength, undiminished strength. And to an Israelite, it was a picture of strength and separation, a unique destiny that comes from God. 
It was all based upon their dependence upon God. It wasn't the hair that made them strong. It was a symbol of their dependence upon God who made them mighty warriors. Now that was Samson's vocation. He was a Nazarite. His destiny was to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And a bit later when Manoah asked the angel again in verse 12, what shall be the boy's destiny? That's a better translation than mode of life. And his vocation, he's told uh, again to remember what uh, his mother was originally told. He was to be a Nazarite, and he was to deliver Israel from, uh, from the Philistines. Now in verse 24, we're told that the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And uh, the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. That is, his life was enriched as a, as a young man growing up. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Ishtal. Uh, stir him in the sense that he became aggravated by his circumstances. He was vexed in his spirit by Philistine atrocities and uh, the wrong that was uh, visited on his people because of the Philistines. He knew that the land belonged to, uh, to Israel, and these invaders had usurp the authority that Israel had in that land. And so he began to stir himself. And uh, the first thing we're told in chapter 14 is that he went down to Timnah. Timnah is about an hour's walk away from Mahanadan. And he strolled in that direction to the west. You'll note where Timnah is on your map. And he saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. And that should have stopped him because the Philistines were off-limits to Israelites. The law uh, prohibited them from intermarriage with the nations around them, the wives of uh, the pagan nation, the, the daughters of the pagan nations around them, because this was always, it always led into idolatry. But uh, he saw this Philistine woman, and he wanted her. He came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now go get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. It appears to me that his only interest was sensual. He had no... Uh, no thought of any spiritual qualification she might have. She just looked good. He's guilty here not only of a breach of Israelite law, but a breach of family etiquette. He, uh, he rebels against his father and mother, and he wants this girl, no matter that she's prohibited, forbidden to him. Uh, a number of years ago, I, uh, like Carolyn and I, befriended a great hulk who lived in uh, northern california he was a professional football player and uh we just had enjoyed very much getting to know him and he came over to our house one day for a thanksgiving meal and he had adopted carolyn as sort of a second mother and he used to chat with her while she was fixing meals and i was in the other room doing something with uh, the kids and i heard george say to carolyn you know there are there are two women that I uh, am trying to decide uh, uh, upon. Uh, both of them would make good wives, and I just can't decide which one I want to marry. He said, first of all, there's Martha. 
And she is beautiful. Oh, is she ever pretty and witty and fun to be with. And uh, then there is Sarah. And I expected him to say, and she uh, is spiritually minded and, and a mature Christian woman. But his comment to Carolyn was, and she has such pretty legs. And Carolyn said, George! And then she began to give him a motherly lecture about the sort of things that a young man ought to look for when he goes to select a wife. Now, she would die if she knew I was telling this story, but the point that I'm trying to make is that that's the same sort of discussion that must have gone on in Samson's family. They were trying to convince her that there are other criteria that need to be uh, acted upon, and he didn't care. She just looked good to him. That's all. And uh, he wanted her. So he says, go down and, and get her for me. So um, in verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and he came as far as the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a kid, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they ate it, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the carcass of a lion. Two things to note. One, Samson's prodigious uh, strength. Though he was clearly out of God's will, God had not abandoned him. You know, that's, that's the way the Lord operates. He will continue to give us everything that he is, even if we're going astray. And uh, this young lion attacks Samson, and he grabs uh, this beast by its hind legs and literally tears it apart, and then goes on uh, down to Timnah. And some time later, he returns, and uh, by this time, the jackals and vultures have picked the carcass clean, and the bees have, hi- have swarmed, hived in the carcass of this, uh, of this lion, and he scrapes the honey out with his great fist, eats some, takes some to his mother, gives it to her, and of course both of them now have violated their Nazarite law. She was a Nazarite as well as he. And uh, despite the Lord's uh, mercy and grace to this young man, he is beginning now to turn away. He violates his, his vow of separation, and he touches a dead animal, and he causes his mother to sin all for the love of a woman. So in verse 10, his father apparently capitulates, and he goes down and arranges for the wedding, and they make a great feast. The uh, Philistines uh, evidently had a seven-day feast, at the end of which the marriage was consummated, and they bring 30 companions to be with him, either a bodyguard for Samson or for myself. I think these were Philistines to uh, protect them from Samson, his strength now is legendary, and he proposes a riddle. Let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast, I'm reading in verse 12, and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, propound your riddle that we may hear it. 
And there's nothing wrong with the riddle. Riddling was a common form of entertainment in the ancient world. There are riddles in the Bible. The uh, first chapter of Proverbs says that this collection is uh, there to teach you how to understand riddles. Proverbs will uh, train and discipline your mind. And there are at least two psalms that are said to contain riddles. So there's nothing wrong with riddling. The, the problem was Samson's greed. These uh, garments that he was seeking were festal garments, special garments, worn on special occasions, very costly. And Samson could not have been expected to own but one. Most men only owned one. But he, he knew this was a wager that he couldn't lose. And so he proposes the, the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And, of course, he was referring to the, to the lion. And it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may tell us the riddle, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. They make her an offer that she can't refuse. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? And Samson's bride turns on the tears, and she uses that time-honored expedient, you don't love me anymore, you won't tell me the, the answer to the riddle. And she wept before him seven days, and finally Samson caved in, and he told her the answer to the riddle. And she passed it on to the Philistines, And in verse 18, we're told, The men of the city came to him on the seventh day before the sun went down. What is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And then we're told in verse 19 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them and took their their spoil, that is, their garments, and gave the changes of clothing to those who told the riddle, and his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. Now, this expression, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon one, is simply an expression, an idiom for superhuman strength that comes from God. And even in this situation, God is still granting to him everything that he is. He goes off to Ashkelon, about 25 miles away, and uh, ambushes and kills 30 of their citizens, strips them of their garments, pays off the wager, and then he goes off to Mahanadan in a high huff and leaves his wife down, his bride, down in Timnah. And then we're told in verse 20 that Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. But after a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, that is in June, when a young man's fancy turns to what young women have been thinking about all year, It came about that Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go into my wife in her room. But her father tells him that she has been given to another man. And so Samson then in verse 4 catches 300 jackals, probably jackals rather than foxes. The uh, Hebrew word is used for both animals. And I think it would be much easier to catch jackals since they run in packs. And uh, he does a curious thing, really a very sadistic and cruel thing. It was a common form of revenge in those days to burn standing grain fields because it had such a devastating impact economically. And uh, he could have done uh, taken that sort of revenge, as bad as that would have been, but uh, he uh, ties the tails of these jackals together, places torches between them, and turns them loose in the grain fields. And the fire engulfs not only the grain fields, but the olive and grape orchards as well. And... Uh, the 
Philistines say in verse 6, who did this? And they discover that Samson is the one. And so they take vengeance on his bride and her companion and her father. And they burn her with fire in verse 6, the very fate that she hoped to avoid. And Samson says, surely you act like this. I will surely take revenge on you. But after that, I will quit. And he struck them ruthlessly with great slaughter. And he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock at Edom. That is, he went down to a cave there and hid himself. And you can see the snowballing effect of, of Samson's sin. There's a chain of consequences that begins with, Satan's, with Samson's illicit love for this woman. And now the Philistines come after him at Edom. And I'll not take time to read the paragraph that follows, but I'm sure it's familiar to all of you. 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cave and they, uh, they tied Samson with ropes and handed him over to the Philistines because he had caused nothing but grief to them. The Philistines were apparently taking vengeance on the rest of the Israelites. And he's turned over to the Philistines. And in verse 14, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes were on his arms, ropes on, uh, that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. And he found a, a fresh jawbone of a donkey. So he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, and this is perhaps closer to the, the original poem, with the jawbone of an ass, I have killed them in mass. He uh, slaughtered a thousand of the Philistines. Now in chapter 16, the story goes on. Samson went to Gaza, saw a harlot there, and went into her. Samson just uh, could not keep his mind off of Philistine women. And uh, so now he goes down to Gaza on the coast, one of the great Philistine cities, one of the five principal city-states, and uh, he visits a young harlot there. And uh, it's told the Gazites, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city, and they kept silent all night, saying, let's wait until the morning light, then we will kill him. So they watched the gate to make certain that he doesn't escape. And Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars, and he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. We don't know if he took the main city gates away. That's probably unlikely, but there were smaller city gates along the walls that uh, were enormous things. They were studded with, uh, with nails, and they had sheets of iron on the front to prevent their being burned. And uh, Samson hoists these up on top of his shoulder, walks right through the city gates, up the hill of the little ridge between uh, Hebron and, and Gaza and deposits them there. So he escapes, and he's thinking, I've gotten away with everything. I've been able to turn my back on everything that's good, proper, right, and I've gotten away with it. I uh, have a friend who used almost those very same words to me some years ago. He walked out on his wife and children and began to live with another woman, and his life just went serenely on. Nothing happened to him. God gave him more children. 
God was gracious to him. He had his health. He became uh, successful in his business. Became moderately wealthy. And his comment to me was, I've gotten away with it. But we don't. None of us does. Galatians 6 uh, puts it this way, If we sow to the flesh, we will from the flesh reap corruption. That's the law of inevitable consequence. As someone has well put it, the mills of God's justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. And uh, though it appears that Samson is home free, he's not. And though God is still gracious to him and he's delivering him from the predicaments that he finds himself in, he's not free. You know the story. After that, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek. He leaves Mahanadan and he makes his way down the valley that runs off to the Mediterranean coast and just out for a night on the town. And he meets a young lady whose name is Delilah, whose name is still synonymous with wiliness and seduction. And the lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him. And we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver. I'm sure she was impressed by the five lords of the Philistines who approached her with this offer. These were the heads of the five Philistine city-states. Impressive figures. But uh, the figure they offer is even more impressive. In today's economy, it would be about $25,000, and it would be uh, much more in those days, just an immense sum of money. would have set her up for life. So she takes about uh, a split second to decide. And Delilah says to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. It's just incredible to me that Samson is so blind to her wiliness. His passion had uh, completely blinded him. And he teases her, you know the story, makes fun of her, and he says, well, if you tie me with uh, bowstrings, fresh bowstrings, then I'm powerless. So while he's asleep, she ties him up. The Philistines are in the back room waiting. They're not going to put in an appearance until they uh, find out if he's subdued, truly subdued. And uh, she shouts at him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And it says he snapped the bowstring like toe when, it's, when it kisses the fire. And it just poof. No effort at all. So she says, Samson, you're teasing me. Tell me, really, how can you be restrained? And he says, well, if you tie me with new ropes, then I can be, uh, I can be overcome. And, of course, she should have known from the incident at Lehi that ropes wouldn't hold him. And, and when she shouts again, he breaks the ropes. And uh, she says, you've deceived me. Tell me the truth, Samson, please. So he says, well, if you bind my hair in a loom, I'm powerless. And you'll note he's getting closer to the, to the truth. And so uh, while he's sleeping with his head on her lap, she weaves his hair into a looms. These were fixed uh, looms, usually fastened to the wall. And she takes the peg and she pounds his hair down into the warp strings. And, and then she shouts at him. And 
he tosses his head and rips the whole apparatus off of the wall and, and walks away with it dangling down his back. And uh, by this time, the Philistines, the Philistines have lost heart and they've left. But uh, she turns on the tears in 15 and says to him, How can you say you love me? You've deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. So he told her. He told her all that was in his heart. And he said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, I don't for a moment believe that Samson's hair was in his strength was in his hair. That's magic, and the Bible knows nothing of magic. His hair was a symbol of his dedicated heart, his heart for God. And as long as he was dependent upon his Lord, then he had strength. He was a man. But when he turned away from God, he was no longer a man. You see, it takes God to be a man or a woman. That's where our strength comes from. It's when we recognize our weakness and we rely upon Him that we have any strength at all. As Paul puts it, it's when we're weak that we're strong. Samson's hair was simply a symbol of that committed heart to God. And now all the symbols had gone. He'd already violated every one of his vows. He touched a carcass. He was involved in the drunken feast. And uh, now he was about to have his head shaved. And his heart had departed. And so she calls in the barber, and he cuts his hair. Verse 19, she made him sleep on her knees and call for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And those are the saddest words, I think, to be found anywhere in Scripture. They easily subdued him, gouged out his eyes. That's ironic when you realize that it was his eyes that led to his downfall. And they brought him down to Gaza, the place of victory for him formally, and bound him with bronze chains. The Hebrew term is dual. It suggests uh, double handcuffs, hands and feet fettered. And he was a grinder in the prison. Cecil B. DeMille's was way off the mark when he had Robert Mitchum push a, a donkey-driven mill in his movie of Samson. Those uh, large mills were not used for about 500 years after this time. He used a mortar and pestle. He was doing women's work. He was sitting on the floor, the dirt floor of the prison, grinding corn with a little little mortar and pestle. Degrading, humiliating experience for this, this great champion. In verse 23, Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. For they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Dagon was the chief god, chief deity of the uh, Philistines, a corn god, fertility god, and these feasts were usually drunken orgies. And uh, they, they brought uh, Samson in for entertainment. Verse 25, it so happened when they were in high spirits that they said, Call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he entertained them and he made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, they had nothing to fear from Samson any longer. His hair had grown out, grown out. But more importantly, his heart had returned to the Lord, as we'll see. 
and they didn't, but they didn't think they had anything to fear from him. And he's they have a small boy there holding his hand, and he says, "Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean upon them." Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and about three thousand men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. There's a gallery on the roof of these uh, Philistine temples. The overflow crowd was up there peering over the edge looking down at Samson. Chris Riddell, who heads up our uh, Idaho Mountain Ministries, had the good fortune to uh, be on an archaeological dig in Palestine back in 1972 when they discovered a Philistine temple in Tel Kassil, way up north in northern Israel. And uh, they discovered there the uh, layout of a Philistine temple. It helps us to understand how this could come about. They, the whole structure is supported by two wooden pillars that are just far enough for a man, a good-sized man, to span. And uh, Samson uh, apparently made his way to where these two wooden posts were, and he pulled them off of the marble bases that they rest on. And so the whole structure collapsed. Verse 29, Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the lords and all the people who were with, who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him, brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ishtal in the tomb of Manoah's father. Samson must have impressed even the Philistines because normally the practice in a situation like this would be to mutilate his body in some way, but they were so impressed by this hero that they sent him back. And, and interestingly enough, in, in the museum at Tel Kassil, there's an urn that has a repeated motif all the way around of a man, a large man, pressing his hands against two pillars. Now, we don't know if that represents Samson or not. It may have been a vase commemorating this event. But in any case, he certainly had a historic impact upon the Philistines. He literally brought the house down. I'm sure you notice verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me. See, it wasn't his hair. That hair was simply a symbol of the strength that came from God. Please strengthen me just one more time, O oh God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And uh, the author of Judges says that more were destroyed in this event, this occasion, than at any other time in his life. But the sad thing about Samson is that he only began to deliver Israel. It remained for David some 50 to 75 years later to drive the Philistines out. The question is not what Samson did, but what he could have done if he'd been God's man from head to toe. If we can derive any application from this passage, it's that illicit sex will ruin your life. It'll mess you up. It'll keep you from being the man or woman that God wants you to be. As Paul puts it in Thessalonians, this is the will of God. As it has to do with your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
By sanctification, he means the unique purpose to which he wants to put us. Sanctified means to set something apart or put something to a special use. And God had a special use for Samson. He wanted him to deliver Israel from the Philistines, but he only began to deliver them. He never realized his manhood. He never became what God intended him to become because he loved too many women. And it was this illicit love of foreign women that eventually did him in. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that that sexual immorality is uniquely a sin against our bodies. Every other sin, he says, is a sin outside our body, but not sexual immorality. We sin against our own bodies. And the reason is because we violate the very purpose for which our bodies were created, and that's to be a vessel filled and flooded with God through which we can make known the character and life of God. And illicit sex always perverts that purpose because our bodies, instead of becoming a vehicle, a means, become the end. And we, we become preoccupied with, with sensual pleasure and, and just fulfilling the desires of the body. It doesn't happen in marriage for reasons that we, won't, we can't discuss this morning because of the limits of time. But outside of marriage, it deflects us away from God's purpose. We literally prostitute ourselves. We sell out. That's why it's so sad. Now, if you're there this morning, remember that God is gracious and forgiving. There's no end to the lengths that He will go to bring us back. All we have to do is recall our Lord's attitude toward the woman caught in adultery to know his attitude toward us when we failed in sexual matters. He loves, loves us. Longs to bring us back and give us the strength that's necessary for obedience. But, you know, we just need to realize we're not playing for nickels and dimes. We're not in this thing for laughs. We're involved in a cosmic battle and we have an enemy who's out to get us. And he'll use sex to get us, if he can.